Good morning. The title of this morning's message is Awake and Arise. This morning, I want to talk to you about what it means for believers to awake and arise. What is it that we're supposed to awake to? And to what do we arise? And what is the result of us arising and awaking? So these words are found in Ephesians 5.14. And it says this, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Now that seems very straightforward, doesn't it? We can see from this scripture that we are supposed to awake out of our sleep and arise out of our death. (laughs) And then the result will be that Christ will illuminate us. But exactly what does all that mean? (laughs) How do I awake out of my sleep? How do I arise out of death? Well, hopefully to answer these questions and get a better understanding, we're gonna look at the context of scripture which is found in the first half of chapter 5 of Ephesians. So we're going to take a quick jog through the first part of chapter 5. When the Lord gave me this scripture, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the death, I thought this message was going to go in a very different way. But that darn context. (laughs) So the Lord is always teaching, always teaching us. And context is king. Let me give you a little background. That's part of our context. In chapter 5 of Ephesians, it has a lot of practical advice towards the end of the chapter. You'll find that with the Apostle Paul. He starts out with the first three or four chapters telling you how wonderful this salvation is. And then he gets down to some practical advice. And so that's what you're going to hear this morning. You're going to hear a little practical advice from the Apostle Paul. Now, we have to remember this practical advice is for the Ephesians. This book was not written to us. It was written for us. So we can look into what he said to the Ephesians and pull out what applies to us. Okay? You need to know that because of what I'm going to talk about. (laughs) Now, the Ephesians, the new believers that Paul was dealing with, most of them were heathens. They were previously heathens. And by heathens, I mean heathens. Ephesus was a major metropolitan area whose economy was based largely on magic, sorcery, and worship of the so-called goddess Artemis or Diana. It was called Diana's Temple. It was one of the seven wonders of the world. And they boasted that they had over 1,000 temple prostitutes. (laughs) Yeah! You see, their idea of worship and God's idea of worship, very different. (laughs) So throughout chapter 5, it's obvious that the Apostle Paul is talking to believers who were not accustomed to Old Testament law with its rules and regulations. When we look at these scriptures, you'd think that'd be a great place for him to say, go read Deuteronomy, go read Numbers, go read Leviticus. Because if that was what he wanted us to do, to get instructions on how to live. That's what he would have told them. That's not what he told them. He simply keeps pointing them to their new identity in Christ, to their new relationship with their Heavenly Father. And then after he does that, after he tells them who they are and what they have, then he points out to them what is out of character with their new identity and their new relationship with God. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1 says this. He starts out, Therefore, be imitators of God as dearly 
loved children or as beloved children. He says, first thing, look to your heavenly father. In order to know how to live, imitate daddy. And then recognize that you are his dearly loved children. So first instruction, first practical advice, know your father and understand his love for you. Verse two, walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Instruction number two, love others in the same way that we are loved. Not the way the heathens love, <laughs> but the way Jesus loves. So walk in love even as Jesus loved us. Verse three, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This is where he gets a little practical. He could have sent them to the Old Testament and say, read the rules and follow them. He's talking to people who are not Jews. It was normal. <laughs> it was normal to be sexually immoral. It was normal to have impurity. That was what life around them consisted of. But he says, that's not proper among saints. He's telling them what's out of character. He says, you are no longer sinners, basically. You're saints. Saints are people who are set apart unto God. He says, I have made you holy. I have made you righteous. You're saints. He says, that stuff is from your previous life and your previous identity. It no longer fits you. It's just not proper for a king to live in a pigsty. That's the comparison he's trying to draw. You don't know who you are if this is how you're living. And then he points them to their new identity over and over again as being holy, not to the law. Verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. Here's his practical advice. He says, bad language and vulgar joking doesn't fit you anymore. It's completely out of place for you. You're a priest and a king. Priests don't speak vulgarities. They pronounce blessings. You're a priest. <laughs> so he says, you're not what you used to be. Live in who you are now. And then he said, let there be thanksgiving. I love this part. <laughs> because thanksgiving fits us perfectly. The Helps Word Studies, the lexicon says this about the word thanksgiving. It's Eucharistia, and it literally means thankful for God's grace or the giving of thanks for God's grace. Specifically, <laughs> for grace. Because <laughs> when we understand grace, we can't help but be thankful. So thanking God, being thankful for his grace, praising him, that's what looks good on a saint. I love this because he not only tells them what is out of character, but he knows telling them just don't talk like that isn't sufficient. He says replace what is not of God and put in what is. Replace what doesn't look good on you anymore and put what does look good on you. So he's giving them more practical advice. I also like that because they have to look at Jesus. You have to look at your father. The giving of thanks for God's grace always points us back to our relationship, which was the first verse, imitate daddy, walk in love. And God's grace, of course, is the power and the strength that enables us to overcome 
whatever is in our life. I remember when I was first a Christian, and that's really who Paul was talking to, new believers, and you have this bad habits <laughs> that come out of your mouth. <laughs> You're completely saved, but your mouth's not quite there yet. <laughs> that's what they were experiencing. So he was telling them, okay, you recognize this is not good for you. This is what should come out of you. Replace it. Replace it. Verse 5. For you may be sure of this, that no one who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and his God. Now who is he talking about here? The Apostle Paul already told us in verse 3, sexual immorality doesn't fit us. So who is he talking about? I think primarily he's talking about Diana worshipers. Because these new believers were coming out of that, they may not have completely exited <laughs> their old lifestyles. <laughs> and so he, I believe he could be talking to both. But I think primarily he's saying, because he's talking about inheritance here, not salvation. He's talking about inheritance. That believers don't access their inheritance if they're living that way which would be the truth. You can't walk with one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light and expect to apprehend. Your faith won't let you. <laughs> your own conscience will be condemning you and your faith isn't going to work when you're condemned. So you're not going to be able to apprehend your inheritance. Now our inheritance isn't earned by good behavior, but our behavior does affect our apprehending what belongs to us. It never ceases to belong to us. It's just that if you've been a Christian very long, you know what happens to you when you sin. You get condemned. <laughs> and when you're walking in condemnation, you're not walking in faith. When you're walking in condemnation, you're not apprehending your inheritance in Christ. So I do think he's telling them that those people over there, don't let them suck you back into that. They don't have what you have. Verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. The word deceive there, I think would be better interpreted as cheat. Some versions use the word cheat. So he's saying, don't let the people you hang around with cheat you out of your inheritance. Don't let the way they live or the way they think or the way they believe cheat you or convince you to go back into that way of thinking, or that way of behaving, or that way of believing. Satan's going to try to use them to steal what belongs to you. Now, he is not talking about naughty believers when he calls them sons of disobedience. Some people are afraid that if they are struggling in an area, say like with a, a, a live-in partnership kind of thing. I, I've known new born-again Christians who get born again and their partner <laughs> that they live with is not born again yet. They have this struggle of, how do I do this? I don't want to back out. I don't want to be out of the relationship. But yesterday, this wasn't wrong. <laughs> and today, it is. <laughs> and so they're afraid when new believers, they read this kind of thing, that it is sons of disobedience, that the wrath of God is coming upon the, I'm a son of disobedience. Wrong. <laughs> you may be disobedient, <laughs> but that's not what this means. 1 Peter 4.4 4. Now those friends think it strange that you no longer join them in all their wild and wasteful things that they do. So they say bad things about you. I think this is what he's talking about, is that the new believers there had their friends and family going, 
think like us, behave like us. <laughs> and of course, if you don't, they think it very odd and that there's something very wrong with you. Of course, that's not the truth. But to be a son of disobedience is to be and wrath. The wrath of God is really better understood as the justice of God. God does bring justice into situations. He loves justice. We love justice. We want justice in this world. And we understand it that way, it's easier to, to comprehend. God's not going around smacking unbelievers, right? <laughs> if God destroyed unbelievers, there wouldn't be any. <laughs> That's not what this is. The word disobedient in the helps word studies says that this word is apithia, and it means not persuaded, referring to willful unbelief. It is the refusal to be convinced by God and by his voice. It includes the idea of being extremely stubborn. When he says sons of disobedience, it would better be translated sons of unbelief because these are people who say, no, I don't want there to be a God. I don't believe in your God. I absolutely refuse to be convinced. That's a son of disobedience. That's somebody who looks God in the face and says, no, thanks, or worse. <laughs> Verse 7. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Throughout this whole section, he's contrasting believers with unbelievers, saints with those who aren't, and how they look, what is in character for a believer. Verse 8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are the light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. The Apostle Paul tells them here, look, <laughs> The reason you shouldn't partner with them is because they are of the dark. You are of the light. They live in a different kingdom. You live in the kingdom of light. You have been translated into a whole different realm. Don't go play in the darkness. <laughs> you won't like it. You won't like what happens over there. But he says, why? Why should you not go play in the darkness? Why should you not go play in sin? Because it's not who you are. You have to be false to yourself to go and act like that. That's his point. He says, if you really knew who you were, you wouldn't even be interested. If you really knew your God, you wouldn't be interested. You wouldn't be persuaded to do what they do and think like they think, because you're light. Verse nine, for the fruit of the light is found in all that is good, right, and true. This is what is inside of us, goodness, righteousness, and truth. We are one with goodness, <laughs> righteousness, and truth. If I am one with goodness, righteousness, and truth, what does that make me? It makes me good, it makes me righteous, and it makes me true in my spirit man. In this particular verse, I added the word the in this translation because even though it's there, the, the King James took it out. And the King James also changed the word light to spirit. So in the King James Version, it will say, the fruit of the spirit is found in all that is goodness, righteousness, and truth. But the earliest manuscripts actually have the word the and the word light, <laughs> which I understand why they changed it. But he's making an analogy here. He's saying the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light, very different, very different. As we submit to Christ, fruit happens. As we submit to Christ, fruit happens. 
So often, I think, uh, new believers in particular, they're in a hurry. They're in a hurry for the outside to look like the inside. <laughs> they're struggling and trying hard, repenting all the time, trying to make fruit happen. Jesus is the one that makes fruit happen. It's his life coming out of us. We cannot force Jesus out of us. <laughs> we can't force fruit. We can change behavior, but fruit comes from within. Verse 10, it says, And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. And the King James says, Acceptable. This is where the Lord started talking to me. <laughs> because when I think about what is acceptable to God, you see, in grace circles, we are accused of giving people licenses to sin which is complete nonsense. But one of my questions is, how do we best teach the church about sin? <laughs> Obviously, the Apostle Paul thought it was important. <laughs> we know that sin is not our nature anymore. This is what the Lord was telling me, because the word acceptable. Sometimes I hear young believers in grace go, well, everything's acceptable to God. You're like, uh, that's not true. <laughs> no, you are acceptable to God in Christ. What we do, no. <laughs> not everything we do is acceptable. Recently, I've decided with the holidays, I wanted to splurge on my diet. <laughs> and so on Sunday night, I go and get ice cream, coconut ice cream. God, is that acceptable? Yeah, yeah, that's acceptable. And God said, look up what that means. Look up what acceptable means. It means to be in full agreement. And I went, ouch, you stepped on my toes. <laughs> because I realized I wasn't thinking the way Jesus was thinking. Does he care if I eat ice cream? Yes. Yes, he cares about everything I do. I'm not naughty because I do. He's not mad at me because I do. But am I walking in full agreement with what he wants for me? And see, I never got that from that verse before. <laughs> now he's talking to heathens that have come out of idol worship, temple prostitution, all kinds of darkness. And he says, instead of the Apostle Paul going, go back to the Old Testament and find out how God wants you to live. He doesn't do that. He says, you go to Jesus and find out how to live. You see, Jesus may tell you it's perfectly fine for you to eat ice cream. But see, I'm trying to lose weight. <laughs> and he says, is that in full agreement with our his and mine, with our desire for your life. And it's like, probably not. <laughs> but what did he do? He pointed it back to relationship. There's no rule that says, thou shalt not eat ice cream on Sunday night. There's no rule like that. <laughs> it's about relationship. And see, that's how personal, that's how personal God wants to get with us, is that he wants to bring the best out in our life. But he's not going to do it without cooperation. 
I'm not going to wake up tomorrow and be 50 pounds lighter. Just not. <laughs> I get to choose if I want to walk in full agreement with his will for my life or not. But he keeps pointing them back to relationship. Verse 11. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Expose them to the truth. Expose them to Christ. Prove that the works of darkness are just what they are. They're dark, they're false, they lie. There isn't any goodness. There is no good fruit in the works of darkness. They only produce death. They only produce death. Verse 12. For it is shameful even to speak of those things that they do in secret. Again, he keeps making the contrast. This is not who you are, that's who they are. When anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. In other words, it becomes apparent to what it really is. So often in this world, especially for new believers, you're like, is this okay for me to do? If I don't have a list of rules, how do I know if this is okay? When Sarah first came into the message of grace, she's like, grace is scary. It's easier to follow the rules because if I only have grace, I could mess up. Yeah, because you're used to relying on something exterior rather than on Jesus. Because we know we can go from, well, this is acceptable, <laughs> which may not be in full agreement with God, but that's acceptable. <laughs> Verse 14. For anything that becomes visible is light. In other words, it is illuminated. It is revealed to what it really is because the light reveals the truth. And then he says, therefore, because the light, Christ in us, illuminates what is and is not true. Because of that, he says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Everything is made clear by the light, Christ. And he says, if you know that everything is made clear by the light, then you need to wake up and rise up. At first, I thought this was a kind of an odd thing to say to believers, because to me, it sounds like something you should say to an unbeliever. Oh, wake, oh, sleeper, you don't know who you are. <laughs> you don't know what God has done for you. And he's like, no, believers can fall asleep. <laughs> but what does he mean by falling asleep? Well, in scripture, sleeping is often used as a euphemism for death. Like when Jesus said that Lazarus was sleeping, even though he was actually dead. The word sleeping is used because sleeping people and dead people look pretty much the same. <laughs> and that was his point. <laughs> he says some believers look just like unbelievers. Sometimes you can't tell by someone's life if they're actually saved or not. And to those who are sleeping, those who are saved and born again, but living in agreement with darkness, he says, wake up, wake up. To awake means to arouse from sleep. It means to excite from a state resembling sleep, as from death, stupidity, or inaction. I really like that one. Awake from stupidity. Sometimes that's our problem. <laughs> We'd like to blame it on the devil, but sometimes we're just dumb. <laughs> we make dumb decisions. To awake also means to put into action or new life, as to awake from the dead, or awake 
the dormant faculties. Aha! There we go. Awake the dormant faculties. The word wake itself means to excite, to arouse, to put into motion or action. So what he's saying is wake up what's already on in the inside of you and put that into action. So what is it we're supposed to wake up to? What's on the inside of us? 1 Corinthians 15, 34. Awake to righteousness and sin not. For some have not the knowledge of God. The Apostle Paul, it seems, had the same problem with the Corinthians that he was having with those Ephesians. <laughs> Large portion of the Corinthian church came out of heathenism and they didn't have the full understanding and knowledge of God and what God had done in them and for them. So they were getting some things wrong, which is why the Apostle Paul sent letters of correction to them. One of the beliefs needing corrections in the Corinthian church was the false doctrine that there was no physical resurrection from the dead and no life after dead. They were probably hanging around with some Sadducees that got saved. Because <laughs> Sadducees didn't believe in an afterlife. There were false teachers saying, this is all there is. You see, in Jewish thought, for the Sadducees, you obeyed God for the physical blessing. You didn't have relationship. You just obeyed to be blessed. So that's what they were telling new believers. You want physical blessing. Yep, that's what you want. But you know what? This is all there is. So Paul says in verse 32 of the same chapter, if after the manner of men I fought the beasts at Ephesus, what doth it profit me? In other words, why would I put up with all this persecution if there's no afterlife? <laughs> if this is all there is, that's crazy. <laughs> if that's all there is, then yes. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But do not be deceived. Evil company doth corrupt good manners or good morals, good habits. He says, don't be deceived by people who try to tell you that it doesn't matter how you live. Everything we do matters. Everything we do matters to God. We are his representatives. We are his ambassadors. As professing Christians, we are the walking and talking advertisements for God's character and essence. So this false teaching was encouraging believers to sin, to go back to their old life. Because if there is no afterlife, then there is no accountability. And if you're under grace, then what does it matter if you sin? That was their false logic. So then that's when he says, awake, awake to your righteousness and sin not. In other words, he says, your problem is, first of all, you don't know what God has done for you in your fullness and you don't know who you are. Their lack of knowledge and the knowledge of their righteousness prevented them from walking in all that God wanted them to walk in. We are the only Jesus some people will ever see. So when we profess to know Christ and then live in darkness, we're not presenting Christ in his fullness. So Paul says what, you're, what you need to do is you need to wake up to who you are in Christ. And then Paul says about this same exact thing, 
to the Romans. It seems this was a systemic problem. <laughs> Ephesians, Corinthians, Romans. <laughs> In chapter 13, verse 11, it says, And do this because you know the time that it is already the hour for you to wake up from sleep. For our salvation is nearer now than when we first believed. And he goes on. The night is far gone, the day has drawn near. Therefore, let us throw off the deeds of darkness and put on the weapons of light. Let us live decently as in the day, not carousing in drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and licentiousness, not in strife and in jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and do not make provision for the desires of the flesh. In each of these passages of scripture, we never see the Apostle Paul saying, go back to the law that your deliverance from your bad behavior, from your bad beliefs, from the things of this world is back there. He says, no, your deliverance is inside of you already. You need to renew your mind to the truth of who you are. You need to know who you are, that you live in a different kingdom, that Satan has no power over you, that you have been delivered from all the realm of darkness. You have already been made a son of the Most High God. You sit at the right hand of the Father. You have the ability to rule and reign in this world. He won't do it without you. <laughs> He can't do it without you. We have to participate. We have to cooperate. <laughs> if we want to see the kingdom come, it's going to come through us. It's not going to fall from heaven. The Apostle Paul tells the Roman believers to wake up. The completion of your salvation is nearer now than it was before. In other words, there's more coming. And the truth is, as believers, yes, we are completely saved. But have we received everything of our inheritance? No. We're still learning to apprehend everything we need. Apprehend everything that he's paid for. That's what he wants us to keep doing. And he says, keep your eyes on the prize, our inheritance. He tells them what kind of behavior is out of character with the people of light. And then he tells them how to be victorious. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Put on your true identity. Put on your righteousness. <laughs> Don't listen to your flesh. He still, after all this, doesn't send them back to the law. He sends them and points them to their relationship. So why does he say that some believers are sleeping? Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. When the Bible talks about those who are asleep, but who are still physically alive, the implication is that their righteousness, which is received by faith in Christ, is not visibly evident in their life. And therefore, the person appears to be no different from someone who is unrighteous. Therefore, the believer is considered to be sleeping, because from the outside, he looks just as dead as an unbeliever. When Paul says, awake to who you really are, awake to your gift of righteousness, put into action the real you, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and put on your weapons of light, faith, hope, and love. First Thessalonians 5.8 says this, but because we are of the day, we must be sober. And yes, that means sober. <laughs> By putting on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. He's telling us we are already equipped to walk in freedom and victory over all the power of the flesh. In 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 5, very famous passage. For though we walk in the flesh, our physical body, 
We do not war after the flesh, the physical body. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the five senses, but they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Strongholds are strong thinking patterns. Strong thinking patterns produce strong physical habits. So he says, cast down those imaginations at every high thing that exalts itself against the what? The knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. The more we know our God, the more we are intimate with our Father, the more that we know that we are in right standing with him, the more victorious we will be and the more we'll recognize what is and isn't out of character with Christ and our righteousness. So Paul is saying, we don't have to be sleepy believers. We can awake to our righteousness. <laughs> now I understand that especially new believers could easily fall asleep spiritually because they haven't completely extricated themselves from the world that they used to live in. And also because new believers don't really understand the fullness of salvation and what it means that God has made us righteous. So I can see how they could be tempted into going back into their old ways. But sometimes I think that there are religious believers that become sleepy believers. Not because they don't know right from wrong, but because they're always working so hard to please God and keep the rules. And when they find out that they can't, they can't win. They can't live this life in their own efforts. They try harder and harder and harder, and the harder they try, the more they fail. And I think it's, there are religious believers who go, I'm obviously not good enough to live this life. I can't live the Christian life. And the truth is nobody can live the Christian life without Christ. <laughs> and they don't know how to do it. They think it's the external rules. And so they get tired of all that hard work. <laughs> they get tired of the, all that trying so hard and not winning. And they go to sleep. They go to sleep on who they are. They live with one foot in the darkness and one foot in the light, and they don't experience what their hearts are really looking for. Our Father's unconditional love and acceptance and our inheritance through Christ. It's really because they don't understand the grace of God. They don't understand that God's not mad at them for their failures. They don't understand that God knows that they can't change themselves by themselves. And they don't understand that they need God's grace and power to make any and all changes. Our Father wants sleepy believers to awake to their righteousness and to their true identity as God's dearly loved children. He wants them to awake to the truth that He is their help. It is His presence and His truth that sets even believers free from every kind of bondage. So the Apostle Paul calls to these sleepy believers and he says, Awake! Arouse yourself to the truth of your righteousness and you'll find there in your righteousness the power to sin not. The Apostle Paul then goes on and says that after you awake to your righteousness, you should arise from the dead. <laughs> awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead and Christ will shine on you. Now, in what way can a believer be considered dead? Well, in one sense, the word dead can be likened to inactivity like in James chapter 2, verse 17, where it says this, So also faith, if it does not have works, is dead being by itself. Dead here means inactive or ineffective. And that would make sense for the Apostle Paul to say, awake to your righteousness and arise out of your inactive and ineffective faith. But personally, I prefer the way the word dead is used in Luke chapter 15. 
In Luke chapter 15, we have the parable of the so-called prodigal son. I think this parable is a very good picture of what the Apostle Paul is trying to convey to the Ephesians, the Corinthians, and the Romans. <laughs> it is a story of two believers who do not know their father's heart for them or their true identity. We are going to take a quick jog through the parable, beginning in Luke 15, verse 11. And this is Jesus speaking. Jesus is the one that tells this story. And he says, there was a certain man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. And he divided unto them his living. Now, according to one of the commentators that I read, there was a law at that time that the Jews picked up, if you will, from other cultures, where if a young man thought ill of his father and was supposedly afraid that his father might unjustifiably withhold his inheritance, the son could request his inheritance early, and the father could not legally decline. This reveals how the prodigal son saw his father. He was asking for his inheritance early because he thought ill of his father. It goes on. Not many days after the, the younger son gathered all together and took his journey into a far country, and there wasted his substance with riotous living. He purposely wasted his inheritance. When he had spent all, there arose a mighty famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Just like the Apostle Paul was saying, <laughs> sin promises life, but it only brings death and destruction. Verse 15, And he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. This young man had reached the bottom of the barrel. In this, he was acting completely outside of his identity as a Jew, as a believer in the one true God, because a Jew would never, never join himself to a Gentile. And that is what this young man did. He completely forgot who he was. He was completely in the dark. Verse 16, And he would fain have filled his belly with the husks that the swine did eat, and no man gave unto him. It meant he was desiring to eat <laughs> what the pigs were eating, and no man gave unto him. Even in a Gentile society, no one associated with pig farmers. They were like one step above a leper. <laughs> the only ones who associated with pig farmers were other pig farmers. <laughs> so he had no one to help him, no one who would give in to his life. Verse 17, And when he came to himself, I love that part, and when he came to himself, when he came to his senses, when the sleeper began to awake, he said, How many hired servants of my father's have bread enough and to spare, and I perish with hunger. Has he figured out who he is yet? No, but what did he do? He remembered that he had a good, good father. He's like, you know what? My dad is really good to his servants. He already knew he didn't deserve to be a son. But maybe dad will let me work for him. It's a lot better with dad than it is here. <laughs> it goes on. And he says, I will arise. I will arise from this life of death. And I will go to my father and will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. He still didn't understand his identity. 
He still thinks he has to earn his status in his father's house, but the sleeper has awakened to the truth of his current sleepy situation. <laughs> and that's when he arose. He rose and he came to his father. This is when our prodigal began to arise out of the dead, when he returned and submitted himself to his father, when he decided to live in full agreement. But when he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him and kissed him and kissed him. You see, all had already been forgiven. The father wasn't angry or vengeful. The father just wanted to love him, accept him, and restore his life to him. And the son said unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in thy sight. I am no more worthy to be called thy son. And his father completely ignored all that. <laughs> and he said to the servants, Bring forth the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. You see, his father said, This is my son. He needs to know he's my son. And his father dressed him as a son and as an heir. A son and an heir. He dressed him in the righteousness of God. He dressed him in his acceptable, well-pleasing, in full agreement attire. <laughs> Slaves don't wear shoes. Sons wear shoes. The father was trying to strip away that false identity of servant and make him remember again that he is his father's son. When I was reading this story, when I've gone through it a couple of times, I said, Lord, I get what you're saying. And most of the time, this parable is used to bring the heathen to Christ, those who don't know him into knowing him. It's used as a Gentile story. And so I was like, where's salvation in here? Where's Jesus in here? Jesus is the one telling this story. And the Lord goes, it's right here. Where? And bring hither the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and be merry. The father wanted there to be no sense of sin between himself and his son, so he ordered the fatted calf. Fatted calves were for the atonement of sin. Fatted calves were for special celebrations. It was common to sacrifice the fatted calf to God before the celebration. So when he said in front of his son, bring forth the fatted calf, he says, son, your sins I will never remember. Your sins I will never bring up. Your mistakes are forever gone. They're covered by the blood and never again will you ever see them. You are a son. The fatted calf wasn't for celebration. It was for reconciliation. <laughs> the father wanted his son to know that I don't resent your mistakes. I will never resent you. I will never cast you out. I will never put you aside. You will never lower your identity in my sight. You are my son and you will always be acceptable in my sight. But you see, the son needed to know that his sins were all forgiven that those sins were not being held somewhere in secret access, for he would bring them out and go, ah, oh, I remember when you did this. <laughs> no, all gone, all gone. All was forgiven and all was atoned for. Verse 24, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to make merry. The father in this story sees his son 
who's living outside of his father's love and kindness and outside of his true identity as being dead. He looked like somebody who was dead, who didn't know the goodness of their father, who didn't know that they'd been made the righteousness of God. The young man had fallen asleep to his true identity and he had fallen asleep to his father's love and goodness. But when the prodigal came to his senses, when he roused himself from sleep and said, I will arise and go to my father, it was then that his life was recovered. That's what it means to, to live again. He who was dead has recovered his life. When he submitted himself to his father, he accepted the life he was meant to live the life of a beloved son and heir. His identity as a beloved son had been lost, but now it was found. Reconciliation brought joy both to the father and to his reinstated son. Now, there's an elder brother. The elder brother was in the field, and as he came, he drew nigh to the house, and he heard the music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said unto him, Thy brother is come, and thy father hath killed the fatted calf, because he hath received him safe and sound. And he was angry. <laughs> he was ticked off <laughs> and would not go in. <laughs> Therefore the father came out to him. You see, the father came out to the son who was in darkness, and the father came out to the son who was in religion. The father always comes to us, and he says, to the older brother <laughs> who's having a temper tantrum. He says, come in. <laughs> we, have to, we have to celebrate. This thy brother was lost, and now he's found. What's odd is the older brother is having a temper tantrum over the fact that his little brother gets what he obviously does not deserve. Grace. Not realizing that he himself is in need of that same grace at that very moment. Because technically, he should have had a spanking right about then. <laughs> because in that society, you don't deny the father. You don't stay outside away from the party. When father comes to get you, which father's not supposed to have to because he can send a servant to go get you. When father himself comes and says, come into the party, he wasn't supposed to deny his father. He was just as disobedient as the prodigal. He was being extremely disrespectful in that society. And he, answering his father, said, Lo, these many years do I serve thee. I'm a hard worker. I'm a hard worker, Dad. <laughs> and neither have I transgressed at any time thy commandment until now. <laughs> and yet thou never gavest me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. The older brother obviously sees himself as deserving of his father's favor and was pretty sure he had earned it <laughs> through all of his hard work. And amazingly, he thought himself perfectly obedient, even while he's in the process of disrespecting his father and accusing him of not rewarding him for his loyalty and obedience. The older brother obviously doesn't know the father's heart or his own. Verse 30. But as soon as this thy son has come, which hath devoured thy living with harlots, thou hast killed for him the fatted calf. It sounds like the older brother doesn't think the younger brother should be forgiven. His sins are just too bad. <laughs> it sounds like the older religious son just might be jealous of a love that forgives so freely. 
and the love that doesn't have to be earned. I think the older brother might have wanted to feel that his father loved him that way, too. Verse 31, And he, the father, said unto him, Son, thou art ever with me, and all that I have is thine. It was meet that we should make merry and be glad, for this thy brother was dead and is alive again, was lost and is found. Jesus paints a wonderful picture of our Heavenly Father and his amazing grace. The Father in this story, of course, represents God, who just happens to have a couple of ungrateful sons. <laughs> and he gives both of his sons their inheritance. Neither one of them earned inheritance. But really, both of them wasted it. The son that left home wasted his inheritance by spending it all on himself and in the pleasures of, of the flesh. And the son that stayed home wasted his inheritance by trying to earn it and by not enjoying his father or his inheritance. Neither one of the sons understood the love of their father for them, which is why they treated their inheritance the way they did. One of the things that I love about this story is that the so-called prodigal son never ceased to be a son in his father's eyes. Yes, he squandered his entire inheritance by living the way he did. He wasted all that the father had given him, but the father still could not wait for his son to come home. The son's behavior had not detoured his father's love for him. The prodigal came to his senses. He woke up from his sleep, but even then, he didn't truly understand that he didn't have to earn his father's acceptance, his love, or his forgiveness. It was all a gift. The prodigal was absolutely right when he said he did not deserve to be treated like his father's son, but that's why it's called grace, the unmerited favor of God. The father in this story describes the prodigal as having been dead when he was out living in the world. The word dead simply means deprived of life. When a believer tries to live life in their own strength, whether it's for good or for evil, it's all dead. Dead works. There is no life apart from the Father, His presence, and especially His love. When we as believers awake from our sleep and recognize the gift of righteousness, and we arise from the dead ways of this world and come and submit ourselves to our Father, then we too are received with hugs and kisses, with no mention of our sins, only reminders of our sonship and forgiveness and inheritance. When we realize who we are and whose we are, the light of Christ will shine on us, which simply means that Jesus on the inside will become visible on the outside. The Apostle Paul knew that laws and rules wouldn't empower the new believers to change their ways, but relationship, relationship with the Father would. Paul knew that sleeping believers didn't understand their father's unconditional love and acceptance of them. So many don't understand that the father has already provided the atonement for their sins in the body of his only begotten son, and he's not mad at them at all. The father only wants to take us to our rightful place as sons of God, ruling and reigning on this earth. And we can only do that as we awake more and more to our righteousness and arise more and more out of the dead ways of this world and let the Christ on the inside of us show up on the outside of us where everyone else can get to see him. So, what is it that we are awake to? 
our righteousness, and our new identity. Even believers can have small areas or episodes in our lives that may not be in full agreement with our Father's will for us. We may have some sleepy areas in our life that just seem too hard for us to overcome. But the good news is that the light of Christ is on the inside of us, and he will reveal to us that which is fitting for sons of God who are also kings and priests. And to what do we arise? We arise out of the dead ways of this world and arise into the unconditional love and acceptance of our Father. When we come to our Father and submit ourselves to him, he isn't going to beat us up for our failures. He simply wants to remind us that all of our sins and failures have been paid for by the blood of his only begotten Son, and that he's not going to bring them up or hold them against us ever. He wants to remind us of who we really are, sons of God, called to rule and reign on this earth through the gift of righteousness and the abundance of grace. And what is the result of us awakening and arising? Christ will shine on us. That simply means that the light and the truth and the character and the essence of Christ and his love will become visible and shine in and through our lives. Amen? We are going to receive communion this morning. Jesus is our fatted calf. None of our sins will ever be remembered, ever. Isn't that an amazing thing? I mean, we remember them. <laughs> but it's amazing that our Father won't let himself remember them or bring them to remembrance. Thank you. Sometimes in uh, grace circles, they talk about you don't have to ask God to forgive you of your sins. I think they stop too soon. No, we don't have to ask Jesus to forgive us of our sins. But he doesn't ask us to just dismiss the fact that they're there either. We need to recognize that because of the blood of Jesus, our sins are not held against us. So when we fall short, when we miss the mark of perfection, when we're eating ice cream when we're not supposed to, <laughs> we don't just dismiss the fact that we've missed the mark of perfection, but we rejoice in the fact that our sins, our failures, our imperfections are never held against us because of the blood of the Lamb. You see, when, we, when, we sin, when I sin, do I apologize to God? Absolutely I do. Oh, God, I'm sorry. But he doesn't want me to stay there because I'm not getting forgiveness. I'm getting cleansing from my conscience. I, I go to my father so he can tell me, see, see, the fatted calf has been slain. I'm not holding that against you. Just be thankful for the blood. Remember the blood. He's not about remembering sin. He's about remembering the blood. Remembering his love for us. Amen. On the night before he was crucified, he took the bread. He said, this is my body which is broken for you. 
take and eat. And after supper, he took the, the cup. He says, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. The blood of the new covenant. An eternal covenant. It takes away the sin of the entire world. Take, drink, participate in your inheritance. A cleansed conscience. conscience. Partake of my life, of my character, of my personality. Partake of me and my love. My life is yours. Live my life. Take and drink. Father, we thank you that you are a good, good Father. And you so loved us You saw us afar off. Before we knew you, you saw us. And you drew us to yourself so that we could partake of real life through your Son, Christ Jesus. And now, sometimes when we fall asleep to who we really are, You simply call us and remind us to arise. Awake to your righteousness. Arise out of those dead, old dead ways and find in me your life again. Participate in the new covenant, in this new life. Appropriate your inheritance. You have been made rich. You have the coat of the righteousness of God. You have the ring and the authority you need to declare the will of God in your life and in the life of others. And you have the shoes that declare that you are no longer a slave, but a son. Father, we thank you. We thank you. for awakening us to who we really are more and more and helping us to come out of wrong thinking, wrong believing, arising out of the death of this world and letting Christ in us shine. We bless you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.